for several weeks now here at Good Shepherd. We've been studying the Lord's Prayer in our sermons. The Lord's Prayer is made up of six requests or petitions. And today we've reached the fifth petition, which is found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. We've printed some of the surrounding verses there on page 11. And two of those verses will be particularly important, verses 14 and 15. We'll look at those during the sermon. But our second Bible reading today is just verse 12, and I'll read that now. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Before we start, let's pray together for God's help. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Father in heaven, we pray that we would find your word to be just as you say it is, a lamp to our feet to keep us from stumbling and a light for our path to show us the way ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do we do with all this guilt? That's a question posed by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung in a blog post written a few years ago. He says, I'm convinced most serious Christians live their lives with an almost constant sense of guilt. Kevin then goes on to list the things we often feel guilty about. He's not saying we should feel guilty about these things. He's saying these are the things we typically feel guilty about. Here are some of the examples on his list. We could pray more. We aren't bold enough in evangelism. We like sports too much. We watch movies and television too much. Our quiet times, meaning our times reading the Bible and praying, are too short or too sporadic. We don't give enough. We need to lose several pounds. We could use our time better. Kevin DeYoung's based in North Carolina as New Yorkers. We might want to add to that list. We could do more for New York's homeless population. There are people in our lives who don't know we're Christians, who should know we're Christians. And here's a pandemic-related item for the guilt list. When we work from home, we don't work the same amount of hours that we would work in the office. I wonder, do any of those things generate ongoing guilt in your life? Guilt isn't entirely negative. Sometimes guilt can direct our attention to something in our life we really do need to address. It's better to have a sensitive conscience than a hardened conscience. However, the positive effect of guilt can easily get drowned out by the sheer volume of guilt in our life. Do you feel as if you're surrounded by invisible people speaking through megaphones reminding you of your shortcomings. Or if you picture the things we feel guilty about as heavy rocks, do you feel as if you're carrying a backpack that's 
loaded down with a growing quantity of rocks? If so, then that question will be very relevant for you. What do we do with all this guilt? The fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer answers that question. And for the rest of the sermon, we're going to explore the fifth petition under two headings. First, an extraordinary expectation. An extraordinary expectation. Jesus tells his disciples to pray to God, forgive us our debts. We usually think of debts as unpaid financial obligations, but the word translated debts was also used in the original language for unpaid moral obligations. And that's the meaning here in verse 12, unpaid moral obligations. If you look down to verses 14 and 15, you'll see that after the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus immediately revisits this fifth petition. But this time, the word he uses doesn't have financial associations. You can see in verse 15 that he switches to the word sins. So the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer is about sin. It's about general moral wrongdoing, all the things filling that guilt backpack that many of us lug around day by day. Jesus is telling us to go to God to ask him to forgive everything in that backpack. Well, that means forgiveness is available from God. Forgiveness must be available from God or else Jesus wouldn't tell us to ask God for it. To help us grasp that point, imagine a parent who sees an ice cream truck outside a playground. The parent notices a sign in the window of the truck saying, out of stock, no ice cream here, all supplies gone. Would that parent give their child a $5 note and say, go to that ice cream truck and buy yourself an ice cream? Of course not. Only a cruel sadist would play that trick on a child. Only a sadist would want to see a child turned away by the ice cream guy and come back crumpled in disappointment. Jesus is not a sadist. He's our loving friend. He would never say to us, go and ask your heavenly father for forgiveness if God had no supplies of forgiveness to offer. So when Jesus tells us to pray for forgiveness, he's saying that forgiveness is available from God. And if there's any doubt in your mind about that, let verse 14 settle it for you. Look at the end of verse 14. Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon drives home the point. He says, if you have been the chief of sinners, you may have the chief of sinners forgiveness and God can bestow it now. End quote. It's God's forgiveness that we need because when we sin against other people, we're ultimately sinning against God. Our sins against other people matter because their creator loves them and wants them to be well treated. That's why King David says in Psalm 51, he says to God, against you, you only, have I sinned. David knew that in a world without God, 
we'd be free to make up our own rules. But we live in a world that is governed by a personal God. That's why the theologian R.C. Sproul defines sin as cosmic treason. He says every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. It's forgiveness from God that we need and Jesus wants us to ask for it because it's available. But since God is a just judge, how can he forgive sins while holding on to his justice? After all, it would be outrageous if a judge in a murder trial told a convicted murderer, I forgive you, and then let the murderer walk free. The Bible confirms, yes, that would be outrageous. Proverbs 17 verse 15 says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both. How then can a righteous God acquit the guilty? How can he forgive the sins of guilty people like you and me without compromising his justice? Many of us will already know the answer that I'm about to give. I'm sure you could come up here and explain the answer yourself. But has that answer really made it down from your head into your heart and into the marrow of your bones? Here's the answer. God can forgive sins because Jesus took the penalty for sin in our place when he died on the cross. In soccer games, a substitution happens when a player comes onto the field in place of another player who leaves it. And that's a picture of what Jesus Christ achieved when he died on the cross. We stood condemned on the field of God's punishment. But Jesus went onto that field himself so that everyone who trusts in him can leave the field of God's punishment. Because he has come on in our place. God the Father can righteously forgive our sins because God the Son willingly took the punishment for them. That's why the Son of God came into our world from heaven. Matthew chapter 1 tells us that before Jesus was born, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Mary's fiance, and said these words, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was the mission Jesus was born to accomplish. He came into the world so that everyone who trusts in him would be, as that verse says, saved from their sins. In 1989, a couple named Tony and Michelle Williams from Merseyside in the northwest of England took out a loan for £5,750, the equivalent of $9,000. They wanted to do some home improvements, put in 
central heating and convert a bathroom into a third bedroom. But by their own admission, they didn't look closely at the small print of the loan agreement. The rate of interest was so high, 34.9%, that by the time the loan had to be repaid 14 years late, 15 years later in 2004, the debt had grown to 384,000 pounds, more than half a million dollars, 67 times the original amount. Waltonian Michelle Williams couldn't pay up. The company that owned the debt demanded the Williams's house by way of repayment. When they refused to hand over their house, they were taken to court and the case was heard in Liverpool County Court in October 2004. To everyone's astonishment, the judge in the case ruled in favour of the Williamses. He declared that the loan was extortionate and said it grossly contravened the ordinary principles of fair dealing. He wiped out the entire debt with these words, the defendants are not indebted and the legal charges do stand redeemed. Afterwards, Michelle Williams said, I can't get my head around it. I'm in a dream. Isn't that how we should feel as Christians? Isn't that how we should feel when we consider that all our moral debts have been forgiven by God? Like Michelle Williams, surely we should find ourselves saying, I can't get my head around it. I'm in a dream. In fact, our stunned amazement should far surpass hers because the judge in the Williams's case was able to wipe out their debt with, with words alone, with that declaration. But God didn't wipe out our debt with words alone. It wouldn't have been righteous for him to do so. To wipe out our debt, the judge of the world had to send his son to be crucified. No matter how long we've known it and believed it to be true, Shouldn't we still find ourselves saying, I can't get my head around it. I'm in a dream. It's been rightly said that Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe for those who owed a debt they could not pay. If you're listening to this sermon as someone who's not yet trusting in Jesus, thank you for listening. Can I ask, can I ask you how you plan to pay off your moral debt as things stand. You may say, I'm not sure I believe in God. I'm not sure I have that debt you're talking about. But the universal human experience of guilt points to the reality of sin. It shows us we live in a moral universe set up by a God who cares about right and wrong. That's why everyone experiences guilt in their lives. The only way for you to come out from under your debt is to put your trust in Jesus and the payment he made at the cross. His payment for sin is enough to pay off a world's moral debt, but it needs to be personally claimed. As Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath 
remains on that person. So come to him if you haven't already done so and claim Jesus' payment for all your sin. Then you will also have that Tony and Michelle Williams experience. I can't get my head around it. I'm in a dream. Come to Jesus. Why live with your moral debt on your back for a day longer than you need to? Those of us here who are already following Jesus can learn from the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer that we don't need to walk around in a fog of guilt. And we shouldn't walk around in a fog of guilt. All of our moral debts have been paid off by Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven. Let the sunshine of divine forgiveness burn off the fog of guilt around you. In that article on guilt that I quoted from at the start, Kevin DeYoung puts it well. He says, let us not be afraid to embrace the lavishness of God's grace. Before we move on to the second and final part of the sermon, you might be wondering why we need to keep praying, forgive us our debts. Why do we need to repeat it? The previous petition of the Lord's Prayer says, give us today our daily bread, which suggests we should pray the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis. But if Jesus has paid off our moral debts in a once-for-all-time way, which is what the Bible teaches, why do we need to go on asking him to forgive us over and over again? The reason is because that's what people do when they're in a loving family relationship. It's important relationally to say to a family member, I was wrong to do that, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? It's important relationally for sin to be acknowledged and apologised for. The pastor and writer Justin Dillahay explains it like this. As our judge, God no longer sees our sin. But as our father, he's quite aware of our remaining sin and he wants us to be aware of it too so that we can fight it. End quote. So when we pray, Father, forgive us our debts, we're saying to God, Father, I'm sorry. What I did was bad for our relationship. Help me overcome my sins that I might please you more as your son, your daughter. And because of our sinful nature, we'll need to keep praying that prayer throughout the rest of our lives in this world. Well, let's now move on from our first heading, an extraordinary expectation, to our second and final heading, a clear condition. A clear condition. Verse 12 says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, those who are in debt to us, those we have a moral claim over. Then in verse 14, as we've seen, Jesus returns to that theme. Out of all the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer, today's forgiveness petition is the only one that gets a footnote. After the Lord's Prayer is over, Jesus returns to the subject of forgiveness. In verses 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. 
Most of us have set out a clear and unavoidable condition. If we're not willing to forgive human beings who sin against us, our Father in heaven will not allow us to claim forgiveness from him. It's important to stress right away that the act of forgiving others doesn't somehow earn God's forgiveness. When we forgive others, it's not as if God sees that and says to himself, now there's a person who deserves to be saved. That very forgiving person deserves to be saved. No, forgiving others is simply one part of repentance. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. And forgiving others is part of repenting. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It goes hand in hand with saving faith because we're saved to serve. We're forgiven to follow. Salvation is not a license to continue rebelling against God. On the contrary, we say yes to God's salvation so that we can live life his way forever. That's the purpose of salvation. He's the creator of all that is good and true and beautiful. His paths are trustworthy. And forgiving people when they sin against us is one of those God-commanded pathways. Forgiving people who have wronged us is hard to do, but it must be done with God's spiritual help. It would be appalling for us to be pro-forgiveness when it comes to receiving forgiveness from God ourselves and then anti-forgiveness when it comes to our dealings with other people. That would be appalling. God could have withheld forgiveness from a guilty world, but he chose to make it available through the death of his only son, living life his way, living repentantly, will mean offering forgiveness to others, just as he did. Now, one question to do with forgiveness is whether it is, in fact, right or even possible to forgive someone who hasn't asked for your forgiveness, who doesn't want it. My understanding of the Bible's teaching is that forgiveness always seems to be about restored relationship. With very minor offences, it's best just to overlook them so that the relationship remains unruffled. It is to a person's glory to overlook an offence, we're told in Proverbs 19, verse 11. I'm very bad at doing that. My wife Betsy is very good at doing that, which I'm grateful for. When I hear Proverbs 19:11, I know I need to grow in that area. It is to a person's glory to overlook an offence. But with serious offences, with serious offences, the Bible encourages us to raise the matter with the person who has offended us and forgiveness does seem to depend on their reaction to that. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I hope you see the relevance of that quotation to this question, can we, should we, forgive those who are not seeking our forgiveness? Listen again to how that quotation begins. If your brother sins against you, Jesus says. And remember how it ends. If the brother, meaning a fellow believer, hasn't acknowledged his fault, he should no longer be treated as a brother. So forgiveness in serious cases depends on the wrongdoer acknowledging their fault and asking for forgiveness. That's when we're commanded to forgive. That's when relationship must be restored. But in situations where the wrongdoer isn't admitting blame or seeking forgiveness, in those situations we shouldn't think it's okay to hold on to bitter hostility. We may not be able to offer forgiveness for the reasons we've just been thinking about, but that doesn't mean it's okay to hold on to bitter hostility against that person. Not at all. As Christians, our stance should always be pro-forgiveness. Our desire should be to forgive wrongdoers. If they are not seeking our forgiveness, then our desire should be that the time will come when they will seek our forgiveness. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he himself demonstrated that when he prayed for the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross. Christians should overflow with abundant goodwill toward all people, praying that anyone who has harmed us will see their error and repent so that relationship can be restored between us and them. Romans 12 verse 8 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. In the 1970s, during some of the worst years of conflict in Northern Ireland, a Catholic teenager named Declan McConville had to travel 15 miles on a public bus to get from his home to his high school. Years later, Declan wrote about those bus journeys. He said, For most of us young Catholics, this was our first significant contact with Protestants of a similar age, and it was a recipe for holy war. The two groups hated each other. On we went for months, arguing and hurling verbal abuse and objects up and down the bus. But that's not where Declan's story ends. There was a Protestant girl who also travelled on that bus. Both her grandfather and her father had been shot dead in a local terrorist attack known as the Tully Vallon Massacre. Here's what Declan says about her in his article. One of the girls who took the bus was a Protestant called Elizabeth. She won my respect. Her father and grandfather had been shot dead in that massacre. She had every right to hate us. She would have known that those who killed her loved ones came from our community and were probably known to us. But in a bridge-building gesture, she began to calm the fighting, break up arguments, and reached out 
the hand of friendship to us Catholics. Inspired by the Gospel's call to love our enemies, Elizabeth was able to live out her Christianity and befriend her enemies. Declan points out it was a journey that many in Northern Ireland could not yet make. A few of her co-religionists would have nothing to do with her for befriending Catholics. Yet long before peace talks or peace agreements, on our school bus we began to see each other as people. Children raised to inherit hatred and tribal loyalties were persuaded to put them aside. My peacemaking friend Elizabeth brought to that bus a form of healing. I am still moved by her actions 35 years later. Spiritually mature Christians like that teenager Elizabeth in Deckna McConville's article. They have a pro forgiveness stance in their lives. They are very difficult to offend. They're quick to forgive. They pray for their enemies. That kind of maturity doesn't come easily to anyone. You may think it's beyond you, but we're not on our own because God has given us his spirit to live within us. And we know that the spirit of God is forgiving because we know all that God did in his great love to forgive us. He can empower us to forgive. Is there someone you are currently shutting out of your life because they wronged you in the past? Do they want to get back on good terms with you? If the answer to those questions is yes, the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer tells you to take action. Pick up the phone. Send an email or a text. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, those who owe us. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has forgiven you so that you can live the forgiving life that God himself lived in the person of his Son. God has the authority to command us to forgive, not just because he's God, but because he has walked that road himself. Let's pray to him now. Father in heaven, you know better than we do ourselves if there is someone in our lives who we should forgive. And we pray that you would show us who that person is and give us the spiritual strength to take action, to reach out to that person, to extend forgiveness, to restore relationship. Please make that easy for us. Especially anyone here who thinks it's impossible. Show us how it can be done. We pray you would help us to act wisely if there are people in our lives who do not acknowledge their fault against us. Help us to pray for them, 
pray that they would be repentant and that relationship might be fully restored. Give us that desire, Father. Make us those filled with goodwill towards other people. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can live the forgiving life. We can live the good life that you give to your people throughout all eternity because our moral debts have been paid off. We praise you, Father. We give you our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.